Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Today is November 21st, 2019. On this day in 1927, a group of coal miners on strike in the town of Serene, Colorado, came head to head with state police. Six miners were killed in the ensuing gunfire. Known as the Columbine Mine Massacre, this incident became a rallying point for labor rights activists across the United States. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the violent nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're discussing the Columbine Mine Massacre, a 1927 incident where state police fired into a crowd of roughly 500 coal miners in the town of Serene, Colorado. Before we unpack the ramifications of the massacre, let's go back to the early morning of November 21st as a crowd gathered outside the Columbine Mine. The sun had not even risen, and already the crowd was thick. Miners pressed against each other, almost shoulder to shoulder. But unlike the other recent rallies, this one had a muted quality. No one was singing Solidarity Forever, and there were few women or children in the crowd. On their way toward the Columbine Mine, the strikers came to a complete stop. Toward the back, a miner strained to see over his companion's shoulders. They should have passed the gates by now. The dawn light glinted off a row of steel helmets. State police. The miner felt his heart sink. It was within their rights to protest without being harassed by authorities. He knew Adams didn't care for the industrial workers of the world, or wobblies as they were often called, but this seemed excessive. Adams was using volunteer policemen as his own union-busting goons. The miner's muscles tensed as he heard a voice come from an officer standing with the state police. It called out, There will be no parades today. After a chorus of responses, the officer spoke again. He asked the assembled crowd, who are your leaders? From the back of the crowd, the miner wasn't sure who spoke, but what they said made him grin. We are all leaders here. This was the sort of speech that would change the world. The police wouldn't be able to arrest a single individual and squelch the movement. The revolution would only be stopped when their demands were met. But the miner was shaken out of these idealistic thoughts moments later, when all hell broke loose. The crowd surged forward. A cloud of horrible gas exploded toward the front of the protest. 
an unexploded canister landed by the miner's feet. Without thinking, he seized it like it was a live grenade and flung it back toward the police. The miner pushed ahead, shouting. He couldn't see the front at all through the gas. His eyes stung, but he would not be deterred. Some of his companions broke away from the group, coughing, but the multitude remained strong. They were hundreds. They would not be deterred by riot control. But then, the unthinkable happened. Gunshots cut through the air ahead of them. The tide of the crowd reversed in an instant. The enraged voices of the Wobblies turned into cries of pain and confusion. Another burly worker collided with the miner, causing him to stagger and fall onto the earth. His thoughts were scattered, confused. How had this happened? He scrambled to his feet and fled back toward his car. Many of his fellows were already gathering by their vehicles. Men were removing their white undershirts, tying bedsheets to shovel handles, and collecting any white cloths they could find. A moment later, the miner realized what they were doing. They were making surrender flags, meant to protect them from more gunfire. The police had opened fire on workers. This was no longer a strike. This was a slaughter. We'll explore the aftermath of the Columbine Mine Massacre after this. Now back to the story. At dawn on November 21, 1927, Colorado State Police opened fire on striking miners just outside the Columbine Mine. When the smoke cleared, two men had been killed. Three more died in the hospital. By the end of the week, a sixth striker had died of his injuries. Testimonies on the morning's events varied widely depending on the source. Colonel Lewis Scherf testified that the crowd had been carrying knives and rocks and had broken the gate to the mine compound open. According to Scherf, he only commanded his men to fire when they were cornered and forced up against a water tank by the bloodthirsty protesters. In the miners' version of the story, the crowd was unarmed, intending only to protest for better conditions as they'd been doing for the last month. The police opened fire when they refused to move. According to some miners, the police used machine guns to subdue the crowd. The police contested this, but the image of a policeman mowing down innocent miners became a rallying image on pro-worker material for the remainder of the protests. The Colorado mine strikes of 1927 to 1928 were organized by the Industrial Workers of the World, a labor organization that has existed since 1905. At the turn of the century, workers' rights were becoming an ongoing source of conflict in the United States. In the early 1910s, labor unions such as the IWW turned their energy to pushing for better hours and working conditions for miners. According to a number of historians, after the First World War, the influence of the IWW had declined. In spite of this, the IWW still had a strong foothold in Colorado, 
as evidenced by the story of Serene. In early September of 1927, the IWW wrote up a list of demands for better working conditions in Colorado mines. They told State Governor Adams and the owners of the mines that if their demands were not met within 30 days, they would go on strike. The IWW's declaration went unheeded, and miners walked out starting October 18th. The first response from Governor Adams came eight days later, on October 26th. Adams wrote, An unfortunate condition exists in the coal fields of the state by reason of the IWW, an un-American organization, having attempted to bring about a strike, and in this attempt has openly and publicly advocated and practiced defiance and violation of the law. In this statement, Governor Adams refused to acknowledge the reality of the strike and soon was marshalling state police to quell the protests. But the police were not instructed to use lethal force on the protesters by Governor Adams. That they did on their own. Adams was almost certainly aware of what could happen if the protests turned into a shooting gallery, because that kind of fiasco had happened before. As tragic as the November 21st massacre was, it was not unprecedented. In 1914, in Ludlow, Colorado, the United Mine Workers of America attempted to marshal a strike against John D. Rockefeller's Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. They demanded that Rockefeller recognize their union and answer their demands for better working conditions. In response, Roughly 25 people were killed that day, including 11 children. Events like the Columbine Mine Massacre showed that even 13 years after the Ludlow Massacre, the state of Colorado had a long way to go for labor reform. Press coverage of the IWW and their proposed labor strike had, for the most part, been hostile and dismissive throughout October of 1927. Following the second massacre, their tone shifted. As is so often the case with protests, it took a horrific act of violence for the masses to show sympathy for their neighbors' plight. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Robert Teamstra. I'm Vanessa Richardson.